0: Our second reading comes from the closing parable of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the 25th chapter beginning with the 31st verse. Listen to this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Just as you did it to one of these of my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. And you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these... You did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God." Well I love thanksgiving. I love gathering in the kitchen to cook together, albeit my role there is somewhat modest. I love gathering at the table to eat together, and my role there is a bit enlarged. I love how stories are told at the Thanksgiving table, often stories that have been told there before. But most of all, I love who gathers. It's family. Even if, if there's some there who are not family by blood, gathering at that table is like being family, and I love that. I will admit that the lectionary gods who placed Jesus' parable of the sheep and goats following the Thanksgiving feast are doing no favors to the preacher. As Matthew's gospel draws to a close, the parables get more and more difficult. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal punishment, as nothing less than our own salvation hangs in the balance, which is probably not what you were hoping we'd talk about these few days after Thanksgiving. It reminds me when I was a child, from time to time my mother would open the back door and holler out to us, put that down, you could poke somebody's eye out with that. Now I no doubt was engaged in some rough housing that made my mother nervous that someone would be injured And so she exclaimed, stop that right now, Tom, stop it right now. You could poke somebody's eye out with that. Now, it's an interesting phrase, and I admit, I have done no research, but anecdotally, I don't think she used this phrase because there was a rash of children in central Alabama with eye patches. I think it was just a mother's way of saying, listen, this is important. If I understand it, Jesus is talking like a mother from central Alabama here. He's saying, listen, this is important. And it is. It is an unsettling passage. The son of man divides the nations. Interestingly, you notice there is no mention of anyone believing or not believing in Jesus. That's not what separates sheep from goats. Also, neither sheep nor goat actually see Jesus. When was it that we saw you, they ask? What distinguishes sheep from goats is that sheep evidently see people. Goats never do. Don't be a goat. Jesus called his followers to pay attention to those on the bottom, to see them. When I was hungry, you fed me, he said. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. You treated me like a human being when the circumstances of the world treated me otherwise. In Barbara Kingsolver's masterful novel, Poisonwood Bible, it tells of Nathan Price, a fundamentalist preacher who goes to Africa to save the lost. His ministry there is largely a failure because he went to save them, but he didn't love them. In the process, he all but destroys his family, arguably for the same reason. Nathan and his wife, Orleana, they have four daughters Ada and Leah are twins. Leah is beautiful and smart. Ada was born with a twisted body and walked with a limp, forever shaped by having to share life with a sister who demanded too much of the womb, she says. One night, the family is awakened as ants march through the village, consuming everything in their path. Everyone raced to the river to escape the ants. Ada with her limp at a distinct disadvantage is scooped up by her mother and carried to the river. 30 years later, haunted by this memory, she calls her mother and over the phone she asks, that night by the river, why did you choose me of all your children Why did you scoop me up?" Orleana responded, When push comes to shove, Ada, a mother loves her children from the bottom up. We are that way, I think. We love our children, but the one who is sick gets our attention at the time. The one struggling with algebra gets our attention at the time. The one going through a divorce or who's lost her job gets our attention at the time. We love our children, but we love them from the bottom up. I think God does too. That's why Jesus calls our attention to the least of these. There is something essentially Christian about paying attention to those on the bottom. You know that. But why is that the case? What is it about that that is so important? Uh, One answer comes from liberation theology. Liberation theology has grown up from the broken places in the world where people's suffering has interacted with the gospel and raised important questions. A central teaching of liberation theology is that God has a preferential option for the poor, for those for whom the world's powers have been at best apathetic and at worst injurious, God loves those for whom suffering isn't inescapable. God's love for those for whom suffering uh, is unavoidable. God loves her children from the bottom up, liberation theology teaches. And I think that's true. There are more than a few places in scripture that say it just that way. I think that's true, but I also think it's complicated. For when we start deciding who God loves the most, our history has taught us that it often results in oppression of those deemed less lovable by God. When our love for God for any reason becomes bad news for our neighbor, we have missed something. But still, Jesus says, see them. Really see them, those at the bottom. Goats won't see them. Don't be a goat. But why? What is supposed to happen, really, when we see the least of these? Jesus said salvation is at stake. But you noticed it's not the salvation of the hungry or the thirsty or the prisoner it's ours. At stake is the salvation who see them, or fail to see them. There's a lot of preaching on Matthew 25 as a text of mission, but it's really more than mission. It's a text of salvation about our seeing one another as we really are. And I think the key to the whole passage, I think the key to the whole passage is verse 40. Just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, members of my family. That's who Jesus says the least of these are. They're his siblings. This story is a story for the church, for Matthew's congregation, and for this one. And for those of us who gather around this story, we rightfully understand ourselves as the children of God, as siblings of Christ, as God's own family. That's a right understanding of ourselves. So you see what's happening here. If we are God's family and they are God's family, then we are family with one another. And when we see the least of these, not as the recipients of mission, but rather as siblings, there is a brokenness in us that begins to heal. When our kids were young, I used to love to read books to them at bedtime, Good Night, Moon, and The Very Hungry Caterpillar, and Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, and. I would, from time to time, read them a Dr. Seuss, and one of their favorites was Yertle the Turtle. Can I read you a bit of it? Would you, would you, I'm going to, so pretend to enjoy it, all right? Pretend to enjoy it. On a faraway island of Salamison, Yertle the Turtle was king of the pond, a nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm. There was plenty to eat. Until Yertle, the king of them all, decided the kingdom he ruled was too small. I'm ruler, said Yertle, of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. So Yertle the turtle king lifted his hand and Yertle the turtle king gave a command. He ordered nine turtles to swim to his stone and using these turtles he built a new throne. He made each turtle stand on another one's back and he piled them up in a nine turtle stack. Then Yertle climbed up and sat down on the pile. What a wonderful view. He could see most a mile. Well, the story goes Yertle grows more and more covetous of an expanding view. He demands more turtles to lift him higher and higher until at the bottom, a turtle named Mac just a part of his throne And this plain little turtle looked up and he said, Beg your pardon, King Turtle. I've pains in my back and my shoulders and knees. How long must we stand here, your majesty, please? Silence. The king of the turtles barked back. I'm king. And you're only a turtle named Mac." But then the throne begins to shake and rumble and... King Yertle falls thud down in the mud. And the story ends this way. And today the great Yertle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud. That's all he can see. And the turtles, of course, all the turtles are free as turtles. And maybe all creatures should be. If I understand the story, the problem with Yertle is not that he couldn't see far enough, it's that he failed to see that his turtleness is connected to a turtle named Mac. Yertle, the turtle king, can forget that his life is connected to a turtle named Mac, I suppose, but our king has reminded us of this truth. Our humanity is caught up in the humanness of others. Our humanity does not fully come to life until we understand that when there is hunger and when there is thirst and when there is violence and when there is injustice, our being family with one another is what is at threat. In February of 1997, President Bill Clinton entered the House chamber to give the State of the Union address. His cabinet was led into the room by Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State. She said this, for the first time, a woman led the cabinet down the aisle between the applauding congressmen and senators. It should have been a moment of unmitigated joy. It wasn't. You may, you may remember that in her growing fame, being named secretary of state, she learned some things about herself that heretofore she had not known. She was Jewish. Her family had fled Europe to escape the threats of Nazi socialism and to protect her. Her parents did not tell her of her heritage. She also learned that 12 members of her family had perished during the Holocaust. In July of that same year, '97, Secretary Albright traveled to the Czech Republic. While there she visited the Pincus synagogue in Prague. She described it this way: Entering, you observe on the wall what appeared to be a finely sketched pattern of wallpaper. But upon closer inspection, you see it is actually made up of neat black writing listing the 77,297 Czechoslovak Jews who died in the Holocaust. Then she said, the Jewish officials accompanying me pointed out the names of Arnost and Olga Korbel. They were her grandparents. She wrote, I had not foreseen that I would start visualizing my grandparents in striped concentration camp uniforms, seeing their hollow faces staring back at me. I thought about how they must have suffered their struggle to survive the torture of their last hours. A year earlier, I had been in that same synagogue, she said. The synagogue was the same. I had changed. The names on the wall now were family. What do you suppose would happen if we started seeing people who suffer as family? As all part of God's family, so all part of our family. I don't know how we get there. It's a heavy lift. But I am trusting Jesus that the first step is to see them, to really see those who suffer as family. And if we see one another as family, then maybe maybe someday, some beautiful day, we'll gather in the kitchen and we'll cook together and... Then we'll gather at the table and we'll eat together and there'll be room for all and enough to go around and we'll tell stories, no doubt stories we've told before. And it'll feel like family, if not by blood, then family by the blood of our king. It would almost be like gathering at some global Thanksgiving table. I don't know what we might call a day like that. But Jesus was pretty clear. He called it salvation. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.